Section 33 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Joseph Conrad is one of the strangest figures in literature. He has called himself the most unliterary of writers. He did not even begin to write till he was halfway between thirty and forty. I do not like to be more precise about the date, because there seems to be some doubt as to the year in which Mr. Conrad was born. Mr. Hugh Walpole, in his brief critical study of Mr. Conrad, gives the date as the 6th of December, 1857. The Encyclopedia Britannica says 1856. Mr. Conrad himself declares in his reminiscences that he was nine years old or thereabouts in 1868, which would bring the year of his birth nearer 1859. Of one thing, however, there is no question. He grew up without any impulse to be a writer. He apparently never even wrote bad verse in his teens. Before he began to write Almayer's Folly, he had written nothing but letters and not very many of these. I never, he declares, made a note of a fact, of an impression, or of an anecdote in my life. The ambition of being an author had never turned up among those precious imaginary existences one creates fondly for oneself in the stillness and immobility of a daydream. At the same time, Mr. Conrad's is not a genius without parentage or pedigree. His father was not only a revolutionary, but in some degree a man of letters. Mr. Conrad tells us that his own acquaintance with English literature began at the age of eight with the two gentlemen of Verona which his father had translated into Polish. He has given us a picture of the child he then was, dressed in a black blouse with a white border in mourning for his mother, as he knelt in his father's study chair, with my elbows on the table and my head held in both hands over the pile of loose pages. While he was still a boy he read Hugo and Don Quixote and Dickens, and a great deal of history and poetry and travel. He had also been fascinated by the map. It may be said of him, even in his childhood, as Sir Thomas Brown has said in general of every human being, that Africa and all her prodigies were within him. No passage in his autobiography suggests the first prophecy of his career so markedly as that in which he writes. It was in 1868, when nine years old or thereabouts, that while looking at a map of Africa of the time and putting my finger on the blank space then representing the unsolved mystery of that continent, I said to myself with absolute assurance and an amazing audacity which are no longer in my character now, when I grow up I shall go there. Mr. Conrad's genius, his consciousness of his destiny, may be said to have come to birth in that hour. What but the second sight of genius could have told this inland child that he would one day escape from the torturing round of rebellion in which the soul of his people was imprisoned to the sunless jungles and secret rivers of Africa, where he would find an imperishable booty of wonder and monstrous fear. Many people regard Heart of Darkness as his greatest story. Heart of Darkness surely began to be written on the day on which the boy of nine, or thereabouts, put his finger on the blank space of the map of Africa and prophesied. He was in no hurry, however, to accomplish his destiny. Mr. Conrad has never been in a hurry, even in telling a story. He has waited on fate rather than run to meet it. I was never, he declares, one of those wonderful fellows that would go afloat in a wash-tub for the sake of the fun. 
On the other hand, he seems always to have followed in his own determined fashion certain sudden intuitions, much as great generals and saints do. Alexander or Napoleon could not have seized the future with a more splendid defiance of reason than did Mr. Conrad when, though he did not yet know six words of English, he came to the resolve, if a seaman, then an English seaman. He has always been obedient to a star. He likes to picture himself as a lazy creature, but he is really one of the most dogged day-laborers who have ever served literature. In Typhoon and Youth he has written of the triumph of the spirit of man over tempest and fire. We may see in these stories not only the record of Mr. Conrad's twenty years' toil as a seaman, but the image of his desperate doggedness as an author writing in a foreign tongue. Line by line, he writes, rather than page by page, was the growth of Almayer's folly. He has earned his fame in the sweat of his brow. He speaks of the terrible bodily fatigue that is the lot of the imaginative writer even more than of the manual laborer. I have, he adds, carried bags of wheat on my back, bent almost double, under a ship's deck-beams, from six in the morning till six in the evening, with an hour and a half off for meals, so I ought to know. He declares, indeed, that the strain of created effort necessary in imaginative writing is something for which a material parallel can only be found in the everlasting sombre stress of the westward winter passage round Cape Horn. This is to make the profession of literature a branch of the heroic life, and that, for all his smiling disparagement of himself as a Sybarite, is what Mr. Conrad has done. It is all the more curious that he should ever have been regarded as one who had added to the literature of despair. He is a tragic writer, it is true. He is the only novelist now writing in English with the grand tragic sense. He is nearer Webster than Shakespeare, perhaps, in the mood of his tragedy. He lifts the curtain upon a world in which the noble and the beautiful go down before an almost meaningless malice. In the end of the tether, in Freya of the Seven Isles, in Victory, it is as though a very Nero of malice who took a special delight in the ruin of great spirits governed events. On the other hand, as in Samson Agonistes, so in the stories of Mr. Conrad, we are confronted with the curious paradox that some deathless quality in the dying hero forbids us utterly to despair. Mr. Hardy has written the tragedy of man's weakness. Mr. Conrad has written the tragedy of man's strength, with courage never to submit or yield. Though Mr. Conrad possesses the tragic sense in a degree that puts him among the great poets, and above any of his living rivals, however, the mass of his work cannot be called tragic. Youth, Typhoon, Lord Jim, The Secret Sharer, The Shadow Line, are not all these fables of conquest and redemption? Man, in Conrad's stories, is always a defier of the devils, and the devils are usually put to flight. Though he is eager to disclaim being a moralist, or even having any liking for moralists, it is clear that he is an exceedingly passionate moralist, and is in more ardent, imaginative sympathy with the duties of man and Burke than with the rights of man and Shelley. Had it not been so, he might have been a political visionary and stayed at home. As it is, this son of a Polish rebel broke away from the wavering aspirations and public dreams of his revolutionary countrymen, and found salvation as an artist in the companionship of simple men at sea.
Some such tremendous breach with the past was necessary in order that Mr. Conrad might be able to achieve his destiny as an artist. No one but an inland child could, perhaps, have come to the sea with such a passion of discovery. The sea to most of us is a glory, but it is a glory of our everyday earth. Mr. Conrad, in his discovery of the sea, broke into a new and wonder-studded world, like some great adventurer of the Renaissance. He was like a man coming out of a pit into the light. That, I admit, is too simple an image to express all that going to sea meant to Mr. Conrad. But some such image seems to me to be necessary to express that element in his writing which reminds one of the vision of a man who has lived much underground. He is a dark man who carries the shadows and the mysteries of the pit about with him. He initiates us in his stories into the romance of Erebus. He leads us through a haunted world in which something worse than a ghost may spring on us out of the darkness. Ironical, sad, a spectator, he is nevertheless a writer who exalts rather than dispirits. His genius moves enlargingly among us, a very spendthrift of treasure, treasure of recollection, observation, imagery, tenderness, and humor. It is a strange thing that it is not until he published Chance that the world in general began to recognize how great a writer was enriching our time. Perhaps his own reserve was partly to blame for this. He tells us that all the characters he ever got on his discharge from a ship contained the word strictly sober, and he claims that he has observed the same sobriety, asceticism of sentiment he calls it, in his literary work as at sea. He has been compared to Dostoevsky, but in his quietism he is the very opposite of Dostoevsky, an author indeed of whom he has written impatiently. At the same time, Mr. Conrad keeps open house in his pages, as Dostoevsky did for strange demons and goblins, that population of grotesque characters that links the bond-realistic novel to the fairy tale. His tales are tales of wonder. He is not only a philosopher of the bold heart under a sky of despair, but one of the magicians of literature. That is why one reads the volume called Youth for the third and fourth time, with even more enthusiasm than when one reads it for the first. End of section 33